You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Well, scripture is Matthew's Gospel, chapter 2, and uh, you'll find that in the church Bible if you're using it on page... 966, 966. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child and as soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. Typical of Herod, actually, that he didn't realize he'd been outwitted by the Lord, but uh, he blamed only the Magi. He was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children 
and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. I guess, uh, like us, you received Christmas cards of various kinds uh, over the festive season. Uh, I brought two along. I checked that neither of them had been sent to me by anyone in St. Peter's, and I can assure you that they were not sent to us by anyone in Grace Church either. Uh, The first is a rather innocuous Christmas card with uh, berries of some kind, green leaves, uh, a little frost, so it was an upper-class charity Christmas card, and uh, it says on the front, Seasons Greetings. Could have been sent at Easter time in some countries in the world. Um, you You really don't need to know anything except that there are seasons in the year maybe be able to guess it was some kind of winter season because of this frosting and um, very innocuous. Wouldn't uh, insult a Jew or might actually insult a Christian most of all. Certainly uh, some of David uh, Robertson's friends who don't seem to believe in God at all uh, wasn't sent by one of them, completely innocuous. But then there are the ones we really like ones that come from the family, perhaps, who understand that we are, we are religious people. Uh, it's amazing how much you need to know for this card to make any sense. This card, uh, you need to know almost nothing, that there are at least two seasons in the year. This card, it's amazing how much you actually need to know to respond either intellectually if you respond intellectually to Christmas cards, or emotionally. It's staggering what you actually need to know. In a sense, in order to understand this card, uh, can you see it? It's got what looked like eastern, there's some kind of eastern city. There's a star, some uh, men with long beards, funny hats, each of them carrying something. They are moving as I think I'm geographically challenged, but I think they must be moving in a westerly direction since they're coming from the right-hand side of the map, uh, from the North Sea side. Um, What does it mean? It's a picture of three funnily dressed men, nice star in the sky, and uh, it's certainly not the city of Dundee. In order to understand this simple Christmas card that was uh, sent to us, you've got to understand that in the Christmas message there is a big picture and there is a small picture. There's a kind of uh, view from the, the heavens that give you a big picture, and then there's a kind of uh, view from the earth. The, the view, the big picture view is, what are these men doing? The small picture view is, what are these men actually experiencing? The interesting thing is that the men themselves have very little idea of what the big picture is. They know something about the big picture, but very little of it but in their experience, their personal experience, uh, 
they actually learn a very great deal about what that big picture means. And we need both perspectives when we read the, the Christmas story in the New Testament. And we need to, yes, as we'll do in a minute, try to get inside the experience of the various people who were gathered round the manger or who in one way or another, like Herod, were concerned about what was in the manger. But we also need to get the big picture. And actually, the big picture that Matthew presents to us at the beginning of his gospel is a very big picture. Some of us saw a couple of Sundays ago that this long genealogy with which the gospel of Matthew begins is telling us two things. It's telling us that the promises of God are being fulfilled, and that two particular promises of God are being fulfilled. The one, the promise that was given to David that one of his descendants would sit on his throne. And here are his descendants. They are they're not quite in abject poverty, but the Gospels make us very acutely aware that they, they really were a poor young couple when it came in a, a little to offer sacrifices and gifts in the temple. They offered the sacrifices and gifts for those who were poor. And this is where the promise of God has reached. It looks as though the promise of God has fallen to the ground. It is the descent has now gone down through these various lines, and the heirs to the throne are, in a sense, Matthew is saying, this young couple. And he's focusing on this young couple and saying, this is where the promise of God to David is going to be fulfilled. But Matthew begins the gospel with an even bigger picture, and he takes, as you remember, right back to Abraham. And he says, and this is, where, this is where the seed of Abraham has come. This poor couple, uh, this couple now in Bethlehem, this couple who are excluded from the inn because of the number of people who are there to be registered. And uh, this, is where, this is where the promise that God gave to Abraham has ended up. Right at the beginning, it looked as though that promise would fall to the ground. And now look where it is. But it's here that the promise given to Abraham that in one of his seed, the nations of the world would find salvation and blessing is going to be fulfilled. And so, the very next thing that happens after the birth of Jesus in Matthew's gospel is what? It's a picture of the nations coming to the Lord Jesus with their gifts and the prophecies and promises of Scripture being fulfilled. And of course, in Matthew's gospel, it's just one of the bookends that eventually leads to this baby, now crucified, raised, and about to ascend to the right hand of God, sending the apostles into the nations to bring the message of the gospel to the nations. So, the big picture into which these magi, these wise men, these uh, scholars from the East find themselves in my Christmas card bearing their gifts is a picture of God 
keeping His promises to bring the Savior into the world and to bring a Savior who would be for the nations. They don't understand that they have been caught up into a divine drama that actually extends to us this morning, that the nations of the earth would be brought by Christ into His glorious kingdom. And as they make their way from the east, this journey in which they've obviously left home and family, perhaps puzzled their research friends who are gazing at other stars in the sky. In an, in an amazing way, we, I cannot understand this Christmas card unless I understand the gospel. But there's also a, there's also a horizontal picture, isn't there? Um, my, my Christmas card, in a sense, invites me to stand alongside these three uh, research, primitive research scientists and ask the question, what is it that you experience here? Because as always in the gospel story, we've got not just the, the big picture, but we've got the individual picture and what it is that God is doing in the lives of those that He is bringing into contact with Jesus Christ. And I want us uh, this morning to think very simply about three lessons that, that we learn from their experience. The first actually is a lesson about interpreting and responding to the providence of God. Uh, whatever else this star in the sky was, and of course people still discuss what it might have been, whatever it was, it was part of the providence of God. However we understand their astronomy slash astrology, this star was part of the providences of God. What was it that awakened in them a desire to see the significance of this star? I am fairly certain it, it was not just that they saw stars. And one of the things that makes me certain about that is their question is not so much about the kind of star this is as it is about the king of the Jews who has been born. If you think about it, it is very clear that these men realize this star is not self-interpreting. Actually, that's a hugely important principle about the providence of God. No providence of God in your life is self-interpreting. So, how did they know what the significance of this star was? Almost certainly, I think it was because somewhere in their tradition was the, some of the stories that we have in the book of Daniel in the Old Testament who you remember was exiled to the east. And as he was exiled to the east, the opening chapters of the book of Daniel uh, underscore for us this deep sense 
that God is going to establish His kingdom. You remember in particular the dream that Nebuchadnezzar has of uh, this giant statue and its different parts and this stone that is uh, cut out of the hill, as it were, but not by human hands, and rolls down the hill and demolishes this statue of His kingdom and the kingdoms that will succeed Him. And so there was, there is in our Scriptures, there was undoubtedly in the traditions of the Babylonians some kind of sense that there was someone who at some point in their history had said that there would be a king. That king was related somehow or another to the Jewish people, and they saw this star. Perhaps they had a confused understanding of the the prophecy of Balaam in the book of Numbers, and they, they, they put two and two together. It's very interesting to me how sometimes people are led by the providence of God by a misunderstanding of a text of Scripture. Isn't that very interesting? How God even superintends people's misunderstanding. But somehow or another, they put together this star, perhaps Balaam's prophecy, and almost certainly the stories they'd heard of the days of Nebuchadnezzar and this prophecy that had come of a king and a kingdom, and this king would be the king, and his kingdom would last forever, and it was associated with the Jews. And then as they make their journey, uh, they take a misstep. Actually, when you think about it, this is, a, this is a very common phenomenon. Here are these men. They have some sense that they are being divinely led to find this King of the Jews, and because they believe they are being divinely led, they extrapolate from the fact that God is leading them to where it is that God is leading them. I think I would have to say that that is one of the most common spiritual errors people make. They make it before they become Christians. And uh, many of us have seen this time and time again. Some, something happens in somebody's life. They are spiritually awakened. They, they know about Christ. What do they do? How many people have you heard say to you, I'm, I'm beginning to get it, and I'm, I'm going to try much harder to keep the commandments. And something drastic happens in their lives. God works in His providence in their lives, and then they assume that they understand what God is doing without turning to God's Word to discover what God is saying. And that was what happened here. A king is going to be born. They come from the east. The star is there. They are led to the land of the Jews, and then they make the false deduction. King, Jews, what is the conclusion of the logic? Jerusalem. But you see, it's altogether this worldly thinking, isn't it? In a way, it's a physical analogy to the person who becomes, through God's providence, convicted of their, their, their sin and their failure, and so they draw the conclusion, sin, failure, God must do better. 
And here they are. And they end up, uh, as we know, in Herod's palace. And it's amazing. This is, this is really staggering to me. Because of their misstep, which is providentially superintended by God, it's only because of their misstep that they are brought back to Scripture to discover where the king is going to be born. Isn't that amazing? Remember how the Scripture says that the Lord gathers His lambs in His bosom, and He gently leads those who are with young. Think of the, those of you who are mature Christians. Think of the codswallop you sometimes made of the guidance of God in your life when you were younger, and yet He, he protected you from all kinds of spiritual disasters, not because you had wisdom, but because He was gracious. Some of you, I'm sure, are even able to think of missteps in your life without which, in the mystery of God's goodness, you would not have entered into the blessings that you later experience. Is that an excuse for our sin? Far from it. What an amazing, astonishing illustration it is of the providence of God. But what are these men discovering? These men are discovering that the providences of God in our lives can only be read properly when the spectacles we have on our noses are the spectacles of sacred Scripture. And that's a desperately important lesson for us to learn as Christians, that we are not capable of interpreting the providences of God apart from the Word of God. That's why spiritual experience on its own can actually lead us astray. We need God's Word to understand God's ways in the lives of God's people and the experience of these uh, magi, these wise men, is a magnificent illustration of that principle. But then there's a second lesson. Not only do we learn something about the providence of God here, uh, we learn something also about the inevitability when we are being led by God of encountering the enemies of God. Of course, these, these men were very slow to, to understand this. Spiritually, they were very naive. They drew their conclusions, star, prophecy, Jews, Jerusalem, King Herod. And it's fairly clear from the narrative that they, they didn't have the spiritual antennae to be, able to, to be able to get the vibrations that came from Herod. You, you, we've all experienced this, haven't we? You know, we've been with a very young Christian, and we've met somebody, and the young Christian, as they've come away, said, boy, that, that person, that person is really spiritually advanced. I need to listen to that person. But we know enough to know that's the last person you should be listening to. Remember Pilgrim's Progress, the people that are encountered by Christian and his friends on the way, and how impressive they are, how how well they speak, they have just the right words, and, and Christian who has uh, matured a little is to take them aside and say, you mustn't listen to him. You've got to see through that. 
and there were the telltale signs. But clearly, these men didn't see through the telltale signs to, to see that this man, Herod, was really an enemy of God. Well, well what were the telltale signs? Hey, one of the telltale signs uh, was that uh, he shouldn't have needed to call his wise men to know where the Messiah was going to be born. He shouldn't have needed to do that. Um, <laughs> you know, if you're going to listen to counsel, you need to listen to counsel from people who actually have read the Bible and who know the Scriptures. And it's, it's so easy to be, to be, you know, we've lived half our lives in, in, with all due respect to our American friends whom we love in St. Peter's, in a society where you can't turn on the television set without realizing there, there must be hundreds of thousands of totally naive professing Christians in this country to keep that television ministry alive. And uh, so, spiritual naivety is, is, is a pandemic in the Western world, and it's been exported to the two-thirds world in, in barrel loads. And, and they, couldn't, they, they didn't know enough Scripture to know that this man should have known more Scripture than they did. My dear friends, I, I, I hesitate to say this, but that's true in many churches, isn't it? There are many churches, alas, in our country this morning filled with people who don't know enough Scripture to know that what they are being taught from pulpits isn't Scripture. And uh, we need to be able to see through that. And, and we need to be able to see through the fact that the, the fruit of this man's life was, uh, was to spread a hostility to Christ. He was troubled. He should have been delighted. The Savior has come, the long-promised Messiah. But he was troubled. That's a, that's a real telltale sign, isn't it? You just need to mention the name Jesus today, and you see that people are troubled. How do we respond to Jesus? And then, of course, they should have seen through His words. You, you go first. And when you find the child, why don't you, why don't you come back and let me know where He is so that, so that I may come and, and worship Him too? Hey, if, you, if he really wanted to worship the Christ child, he would have said, can I come with you? So, they, they should have seen through all this, but they, they didn't have the big picture. And actually, this big picture that I mentioned a few minutes ago fits into the bigger picture, doesn't it? That begins in Genesis 3.15 and ends in Revelation 20 of the enmity that there would be between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. You remember the picture that there is in, in Revelation 12 of the, I think of probably in John's mind, if he, if he had ever spoken to Matthew about his gospel, John would have realized when he had this vision in the book of Revelation about the great red dragon waiting, as it were, right in front of the woman for the child to be born who would rule the nations in order to devour the child. 
You see, if these uh, wise men had had Genesis 3.15, even if they'd had more of the book of Daniel, they would have realized that the nearer you get to the Christ, the closer you get to the conflict. And they needed to know that. They learned it, but they desperately, thank God, in a sense, God preserved them when they didn't understand it, but it didn't take long for them to learn it. As they went home, one of the things they would have been talking about, one of the things when they went back to their wives, well, what happened? We escaped with our lives, and we walked into Herod's trap. We didn't understand. Interesting how we don't think twice about teaching our children there's a wicked spirit watching round you still, and he tries to tempt you to all harm and ill, and then we're 17 years old, and we begin to forget it, that we're in a battle and that at the heart of that battle is Satan's desire to destroy Jesus Christ. We're sure in the heart of that battle socially, aren't we, and nationally, um, when it, it, more and more it's becoming forbidden to name the name of Jesus in the public square. Believe in Jesus if you want to, but don't name Jesus in the public square. Our prime minister in the middle of last year says something about this being a Christian country. It doesn't matter whether it's a Christian country or not, but all hell breaks loose. Don't say things like that. And in our schools, musicals replace the story. And we need to see that we're not wrestling against flesh and blood, but principalities and powers wickedness in the heavenly places. And, and we need to understand, as Paul so wonderfully indicates to us in Ephesians, that if we have been brought to Christ, then we are blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. But when he ends the letter, he says, you need to watch out because those heavenly places are the very realms in which Satan seeks to destroy what Christ is doing in your life. Because becoming a Christian, coming to the Christ, is actually a little like the children finding there's a back door in the wardrobe in the professor's house and finding themselves in a world which is marked by conflict until the winter breaks. So, we need to learn how to interpret God's providence by knowing Scripture. We need to understand that we are, we are living the Christian life in the context of enemy oppression. And there's a third lesson, one about interpreting God's providence, another about encountering God's enemies, and the third is about trusting God's purposes. Um, the book that we associate with Christmas probably is a Christmas carol, isn't it? I sometimes think the book we should we associate with, with Christmas is A Tale of Two Cities. It's, it's actually a story about A Tale of Two Cities. City of God, City of Man, best of times, but also the worst of times, isn't it? As the story goes on and Herod's anger increases, and he gives orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were, who were two years and 
and under, my Christmas cards would rather suggest to me, all's well that ends well. But for some people, it didn't end well. And uh, it's interesting, isn't it, that right from the very opening of the gospel, we are being told there is a dark side to Christmas. In fact, I think we're being told even more than that. Uh, The family goes to Egypt. The Magi get back home. But you remember the picture in Revelation chapter 12? What does the dragon do when the Christ child is secured? He goes off in pursuit of all those who belong to the Christ child. He wreaks havoc. And one of the things that I think Matthew is teaching us here about the Christmas story is this. The incarnation of itself does not tie up all the loose ends of our lives. And we are left, aren't we, with this picture of parents weeping. Probably not many of them. Bethlehem was a minuscule place. Probably not many babies born, even in the space of two years. Perhaps as many kids are born in St. Peter's in two years as born in Bethlehem. But uh, precious children, loved by their parents. And you see, if if these parents were to if these parents were to go to their rabbis and say, Rabbi, uh, what, what's the meaning of this? What's the meaning of this? How, how, are we ever, how are we ever going to see what the meaning of this is? Which is what you want to do, isn't it? When someone you love is taken, especially young, you, you want to you want to see, it's, it's one of the most basic human instincts. If I could only see there was meaning in it. And yet, uh, during their lifetime, maybe, maybe they began to see the meaning. Maybe. I wonder if you know uh, that poem that John Piper wrote a couple of decades ago now called The Innkeeper, in which he rather beautifully and movingly imagines Jesus on His way to Calvary, stopping in Bethlehem and and going to see the innkeeper and discovering that the, the innkeeper has lost an arm and a wife and a dog and a child in Herod's pogrom. And John Piper imagines the conversation that takes place. Uh, And uh, as you would expect, John Piper gets it. He He gets this very point. Here's how the poem ends. Says Jacob the innkeeper, we got a reputation here that night, nothing at all to fear in that we thought it was of God. But in one year, the slaughter squad from Herod came, and where do you suppose they started? Not a clue. We didn't have a clue what they had come to do. No time to pray, no time to run, no time to get poor Joseph off the street and let him say goodbye to Ben or me or Rachel. Only time to see a lifted spear smash through his spine and chest. He stumbled 
to the sign that welcomed strangers to the place, and looked with panic at my face as if to ask what he had done. Young man, you have lost a son. The tears streamed down the Savior's cheek. He shook his head but couldn't speak. Before I found the breath to scream, I heard the words, a horrid dream, kill every child who's two or less. Spare not for aught, nor make excess. Let this one be the oldest here, and if you count your own life dear, let none escape. I had no sword, no weapon in my house, but, Lord, I had my hands, and I would save the son of my right hand. So brave, oh, Rachel was so brave. Her hands were like a thousand iron bands around the boy. She wouldn't let him go, and so her own back met with every thrust and blow. I lost my arm, my wife, my sons, the cost for housing the Messiah here. Why would he simply disappear and never come to help? They sat in silence. Jacob wondered at the stranger's tears. I am the boy that Herod wanted to destroy. You gave my parents room to give me life, and then God let me live and took your wife. Ask me not why the one should live and other die. God's ways are high, and you will know in time. But I have come to show you what the Lord prepared the night you made a place for heaven's light. In two weeks they will crucify my flesh. But mark this, Jacob, I will rise in three days from the dead and place my foot upon the head of him who has the power of death. And I will raise with life and breath your wife and Ben and Joseph too and give them, Jacob, back to you with everything the world can store. And you will reign forevermore. You see, the point, in a sense, of the Christmas narrative in Matthew ending with Herod's pogrom is that Christ's first coming demands His second coming. Christ's first coming brings us forgiveness and pardon and new life but it does not answer every question in the human heart. But one day those questions will all be answered. And those lines I remember being taught in school, probably wrongly, that parallel lines are lines that meet only in infinity. I suppose trying to tell us there's nothing straight in this world. But here the message of the gospel is, those parallel lines of your grief and God's purposes, they will never meet in time. They will only meet when the Savior returns and when the one who was born in lowliness in Bethlehem's inn with such pain surrounding him will come again in majesty and glory and put all things right. And until then, we always have that second question we will want to ask when we get to heaven. The first being, where is Jesus? And the answer will be, you cannot go anywhere here without being able to see Him. 
and the second will be to Jesus. Jesus, can you tell me why? And then Jesus, who does all things well, will fulfill that word that He said to Simon Peter. Peter, you do not understand what I am doing now, but afterward you will understand. And He will take all the parallel lines of His grace and of the dark things of life that have run through our experience, and He will show us how in His gracious purposes they have met in eternity and all that He has done through them. So, there's a lesson here, isn't there, about the providences of God. There's a lesson here about the enemies of God. And there's a lesson here that we really can trust the purposes of God. And the reason we know we can trust His purposes is because He gave His Son in the first place. And it's in Him and in Him alone that everything will become clear. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. We bow before the mystery of Your providences, recognizing that there is so much that we can neither explain nor understand. But this we know, that Christ has come, that Christ has taught, that Christ has died, that Christ has risen, that Christ has ascended, that Christ reigns, and that Christ is coming again. And since You did not spare Your own Son, but gave Him to us in the manger in Bethlehem and for us on the cross of Calvary, we can be sure that You will also give us everything we need and that You will do for us everything that is required to bring glory to Him and blessing to us. And so we look to You for it in Jesus, our Savior's name. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.